O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. There's nothing quite like Christmas in the Episcopal Church. Now, that may sound snobbish, but truly I do not mean it that way. Episcopalians celebrate Christmas better than the rest. Many of the essential Christmas hymns are English. The tradition of lessons and carols which everyone copies is thoroughly Anglican. If you want to attend Christmas worship when you're away from home visiting family, the best bet is always the local Episcopal Church. Now to be clear, we are not the best at everything, but Christmas time is a time that we excel. Roman Catholics with their piety around Fridays and crucifixes do a good Good Friday. The Orthodox churches are known for celebrations of Easter that make other churches jealous. Protestants, such as Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, they are known for strong preaching based on their emphasis of scripture. AME Zion congregations have soulful singing that can make even the most timid of us start to move in rhythm. When it comes to being moved by the Spirit and celebrating Pentecost, well, the Pentecostals have the corner on that market. <laughs> but Christmas, that's the season in which Anglicans shine. Now, this is not a sermon about patting ourselves on the back for being a tradition that does Christmas well. There is no gloating. Instead, I want to explain why it is Anglicans excel at Christmas. It's because Anglican sensibilities, spirituality, and theology are all deeply incarnational. The rest of the sermon is going to be an explanation of what exactly I mean by that. Now, this is not my opinion. If you were to survey scholars across the church, they'll tell you that what makes Anglicans distinct, what gives us our quirks, what makes us us, is our incarnational focus. Now, that, that's, that at all does not mean other traditions do not have this doctrine. They do. And they also celebrate Christmas quite well. But for us as Anglicans, the incarnation, Christmas, is at our very center. More than the cross, more than the resurrection, more than the sending of the spirits, more than any particular practices of faith or the reading of scripture, what fuels the Anglican spirit is the incarnation. Now I realize incarnation, that's a fancy word. So to make sure that we're all on the same page, incarnation is the central Christian commitment to the claim that as the creed puts it, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Incarnation means that God took on flesh, living and dying a human life. Perhaps you've been to a restaurant before and ordered carne asada, which is Spanish for grilled meat. Well, carne just means flesh. So incarnation means in the flesh. It's not that God visited us in a vision, something like an angel. 
Nor is it that Jesus was a heavenly hologram or anything like that, where he only seemed like he was really with us. No, the incarnation insists that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word through whom all creation was made, was really and truly and fully human. God was embodied along all that goes with that. Splinters, body odor, upset stomachs, headaches, hunger, ticklishness, laughter, all of it. This is what is at the very center of Anglicanism. It is as the great Anglican writer C.S. Lewis put it, every miracle of our faith prepares for, exhibits, and results from the central miracle of the Incarnation. Creation, Exodus, the feeding of the 5,000, crucifixion, resurrection, Pentecost, the last day, all anticipate or flow from the fact that the Word became flesh. Now again, every other Christian tradition affirms the Incarnation. They all celebrate Christmas. Many of them do it very well. But Anglicans are distinct in that we have Christmas at the very center of things. For the remainder of the sermon, I'm going to define, describe, and detail what this focus on the Incarnation means for Anglicanism. Now, I've already given the dictionary sort of definition of Incarnation, but let's go just a little bit deeper in defining Incarnation. Trinitarian theology is both incredibly simple and profoundly complicated. It's simple because the equation is 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Understanding how that works is where it gets complicated. The incarnation only makes sense when we trust both that God is one and at the same time God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What the incarnation says is that the Son, who is God, but not the entirety of the Trinity, became human. So we are not saying that God the Father was incarnate because it was the Son the second person of the Trinity who came among us. And the Son is, as the Creed teaches us, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And that's exactly what John has in mind when he writes what is for Anglicans perhaps the most significant verse in all of Scripture, perhaps the most significant thing that's ever been written in all of history. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. Now, to further illustrate how important that one verse is to Anglicans, perhaps you've heard of the cord. Now, even if you've never heard of it, you have certainly heard it. In the final verse of the great Christmas hymn, O Come, All Ye Faithful, there is a definition of the incarnation embedded in this hymn. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And there is an arrangement by the great musician of King's College, Cambridge, Sir David Wilcox, of this hymn that's widely used. And it uses a different notation in this final verse when we get to that word, word. It's a half-diminished seventh chord. If you want to know what that is, you'll have to ask Stephen, not me. But that chord gives this one note so much more gravitas and majesty. 
And this is not just some little obscure musical factoid. Church nerds have t-shirts with this chord printed on it. There was even a New York Times article about this chord last year. Now, I cannot explain to you why this particular chord is any more powerful than others, any more than I can explain how it is that God became man. But my ability to put that into words does not change the fact that the word became flesh and that it matters to Anglicans. That's the definition of incarnation, that in Jesus, God is with us. Jesus is fully, completely, and without any reservation the answer to the prayer of Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now to describe what this means, there are a few things that are true because of the incarnation, and they are the hallmarks of Anglicanism. The first is that the incarnation is Christocentric. It focuses on Jesus Christ. Now in no way does this diminish the role of the Father or the Spirit. It's just that at our center is the story of the Gospels. And you can even see this expressed in our liturgy. The Gospel is read from the center of the nave with a procession before and after it. Our buildings are cross-shaped in their layout. As we heard in Galatians, it is through Christ that we are made children of God. Anglican spirituality and theology are rooted in the person and work of Jesus. The Incarnation also gives us a distinctive approach to creation. This aspect of Incarnational and Anglican theology goes all the way back to the Celtic roots of our tradition. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, puts it, the Incarnation does not require a miracle. It reveals that creation already was one. In other words, the Incarnation does not require an explanation because it is the explanation for everything else. Because God always intended to come among us, the beauty and the goodness of creation are necessities. As we know from another Christmas hymn, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Nature sings to receive her king. In Isaiah, we heard the prophet testify about a garden springing up to life. Indeed, for us as Anglicans, creation is the first miracle which prepares for the coming of the Word in the flesh. It's why Anglicans focus on materiality and senses. Our worship is not intellectual, but there are sights, smells, sounds, and tastes there's a very physical aspect to Anglican spirituality. Perhaps you've noticed this in the way that we cross ourselves and we kneel and stand and sit in worship. There's a goodness and a sacredness that infuses all of creation because of our incarnational lens. And this leads to the next description of Anglican identity. We are sacramental. Yes, we focus on sacraments in worship, but we see all of life as sacramental. John speaks about the light that came into the world at the Incarnation and how this light enlightens everyone and transforms everything it encounters. What this means is that Anglicans embrace mystery because we do not draw a distinction between sacred and secular. 
The whole world is charged with the grandeur of God. Every common bush afire with God. Now, this is, does not mean that the sacraments of the church are not special or holy. They are. They are sure and certain means of God's grace. But there is also a sacramental character to all of life. Humanity and divinity are intertwined in the incarnation. Again, turning to Lewis, as he puts it in one of his Narnia books, Anglicans recognize that there is a deep magic that sustains and undergirds all things. The last description of Anglican distinctiveness is that our theology is always contextual and tangible. Isaiah says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. That's a very Anglican sensibility. It's why we insist on common prayer, prayer that is in the vernacular. There is an incredible specificity in the incarnation. The Son of God does not become incarnate once in every generation and on every continent. No, it was a very specific and contextual event that occurred in the fullness of time. It doesn't necessarily mean that first century Palestine was the best of all times and places, but it was the right time for the Christ to be born. And this is why Anglicans are so resistant to things like doctrinal confessions and systematic theologies. Our theology is what some call occasional, meaning we do the work of theology when the situation calls for it, but not really in the abstract. And this is the frustration that a lot of people have with us Episcopalians. You ask us a question, particularly about politics or ethics, and we do not have a ready-made answer to respond with. Instead, we ask a question. Tell me more about the situation. This is why, though we are united in our common prayer, Episcopal congregations can have such differences regarding style and formality of worship. Context matters. Diversity is a blessing, not something to overcome. And this contextual sensibility is rooted in the incarnational center. Very briefly, I want to just point out some details about how you will notice the incarnation shaping Anglicanism. This incarnational focus on the sacredness of creation helps us to understand why our tradition prioritizes beauty so much. Whether it's our architecture, vestments, prayers, music, or liturgy, Anglicanism strives to express beauty in all things, because beauty is one way to encounter the goodness of Christ in all of creation. The tangible and physical aspect of the Incarnation explains why Anglicans are mindful of social justice issues. As is expressed in our baptismal covenant, we prioritize the inherent dignity of all people. This is not some liberal or woke agenda. It is an expression of an incarnational faith. Bodies matter. And so how we use and treat bodies matters. Because the distinction between the sacred and the profane is blurred in Anglican spirituality, it means Anglicans historically have been avid supporters 
of the humanities and sciences. We do not see science and faith as competitors, but rather as partners in pursuing truth. The humanities of arts, literature, history, philosophy, and languages are not seen as distractions or lesser fields of study to theology. Instead, the humanities are different ways to approach the God who is in all things. Related to this concept of the incarnation is a sense of humility, which is best found in a hymn of the early church. Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave being born in human likeness. Yes, Anglicans can be as arrogant as any other tradition, sometimes much more so. But that is a characteristic of our sinful human nature, not our incarnational nature. When Anglicans get into trouble, we leave behind that humility and we try to get overly theological. We do our best when we are praying and serving, because that's about having God and others at the center. Almost all of our problems as a tradition arise when we get too far afield from worship and charity. And this sense of humility brings us to the final detail about Anglicanism, and I've already mentioned it. We embrace mystery. Humility reminds us that we do not know it all. And so mystery is something that Anglicans are quite comfortable with. We realize that sometimes beauty says more than a book. Good liturgy is more foundational than a good catechism. Common prayer matters more than common thoughts. Bringing all of this together, hopefully not surprisingly, is the Eucharist. Now, we are not the only tradition that values or centers the Eucharist. Again, there's nothing uniquely special about Anglicanism, only things that make us distinct. In the Eucharist, all of this, all that I've mentioned, comes together. Because the Eucharist, like the Incarnation, is the time when eternity touches time as God is with us in the body of Christ. The Eucharist is centered on Christ. It comes from the grapes and the grain of creation. It is about a sacramental transformation, and it happens in contextual and specific celebrations across time and space. The Eucharist is full of beauty. It urges us to make sure that all people have places at the tables of our world. It reminds us of our humble place before God as we all come forward with empty hands. It is a sacred mystery. The Eucharist would have us to behold the fullness of our humanity that we might become the fullness of the love we receive in it. The Eucharist is an expression of our incarnational nature as Anglicans. It is not at all a competition. We just happen to do Christmas really well because the proclamation of Christmas that the Word was made flesh is what makes us distinctively Anglican. It's the specialty that we bring to the table of Christian fellowship. Therefore, let us keep the feast.